It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Gold Goats and Guns podcast. My name is Tom Luongo. We've got a lot to talk about. It's Tuesday, November 19th, 2019, and there's finally some movement in Ukrainian-Russian relations after five years of conflict by proxy. Why is this important? It's important because Ukraine is one of the major hotspots that has been uh, fomented by the U.S. and Western powers to marginalize Russia and marginalize and try and blunt its rise. And Ukraine is, well, it's also incredibly important, obviously, right now for domestic purposes relative to the impeachment hearings or sham impeachment kangaroo trial thing that Adam Schiff is putting on in Congress. The big news I want to focus on today are Gazprom offering a new contract for gas delivery to Ukraine, which is due to end in a couple of weeks, and the fact that they have returned um, or beginning to return the ships that were seized in last year's Kerch Strait incident. I'll go over that as well. So it looks like we're beginning to see uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky try and work around their existing limitations to and over and barriers to them forging a better relationship, which both countries know they need. But before we get to the rest of that, I want to remind you that you can follow my work over at my blog at TomLuongo.me. You can follow me on Twitter at TFL1728. Live streams, they happen every Monday and Friday night on YouTube, Monday at 8 p.m. and Friday at 8.30 Eastern Standard. Warning. I'm a bad boy, I've got a potty mouth, and I'm not afraid to use it. You can also support not only me as a verified publisher, but also anyone else who is by downloading and installing the Brave browser, where you can get paid in crypto tokens called BAT for voluntarily being served internet advertising as opposed to the ones that Google wants you to see. Moreover, Brave severely limits the amount of spyware following you around the internet and helps protect your online privacy while saving you time and bandwidth by blocking all those data snoopers that are feeding the growing surveillance state. I've been using Brave for six months. It works like a champ. It's actually one of the best browsers I've ever used. The more I use it, the more I like it, and the more I don't want to use anything else. 
Uh, lastly, you can support me over at Patreon at Patreon slash Gold Goats and Guns. We just released uh, the latest ish- issue of my monthly investment newsletter. Uh, picked up some new patrons from that as well. Uh, big shout out to all y'all. Uh, you are the ones that help make all of this happen. So you can sign up for private mar- bi-weekly market reports, which are published every Wednesday and Sunday. And you can also get, as I've mentioned, the Gold Goats and Guns monthly newsletter designed to wrap up all the geopolitical chaos, global macroeconomics, and shifting cultural and technological trends into a retail investor-focused portfolio strategy designed to help you make sense of a world going mad. All right, now that we've got that out of the way, let's get down to business talking about Russia and Ukraine. So Russian and Ukrainian ter- uh, relations have been terrible for the last five years since the ouster of, or not five and a half years, or almost six years, since the ouster of uh, President uh, Viktor Yanukovych as a result of the Maidan uprising back in t- February 2014. Now, Ukraine's incredibly important and understand that the goal of the coup, which was born out of organic disgust for Yanukovych's uh, corruption and, and government, was to install a puppet government there, which was successful in that, you know, we got five years of Petro Poroshenko. Uh, but with the goal eventually of getting control of the entire country, seizing control of the, the port at Sevastopol, controlling the Black Sea, and bottling Russia up um, behind and, and taking away its warm water port, which has been the goal of U.S., British, European political strategy for the last 250 years. There's nothing has changed here, okay? So, and the more important part is that especially in the last couple of years, the more important part is to put as many NATO-bound missiles or NATO-controlled missiles on the border between Ukraine and Russia as possible to get them as close to Moscow as possible because that is the only way we could actually successfully threaten Moscow because Russian air defense systems are so good, missile defense systems are so good that uh, it's very difficult for us to actually deliver a lot of the tar- um, a lot of the payloads that we would want to in a quote unquote nuclear confrontation with Russia. And believe me, the neocon crazies who can control foreign policy in the U.S. absolutely believe that they can win a first strike uh, nuclear strike against Russia in any kind of war. That's what they're angling for. That is ultimately what their arguments for U.S foreign policy is all about. They absolutely want to destroy Russia. They understand that the Russians truly are the only other military power that's that's stopping them from world hegemony. And um, that's why they continue to, to prosecute uh, and advocate for foreign policy that is seemingly insane. So, since that time, uh, Ukraine and the civil war there or the war to prevent the secession of the Donbass has been a frozen conflict for about five years now. Certainly since uh, the Minsk two agreements were agreed to by the, by the four players involved, uh, France, Germany, uh, Ukraine, and the separatists back in uh, was it 2015, I think that finally uh, Minsk two was finally agreed to. Um, it's been a, it's been a frozen conflict. Uh, there's still people dying. There are still people being assassinated. It's still it's still a hot war on the contact line and everything else. But there's been a lot of movement and a lot of signaling from both sides, certainly the Russians and now the Ukrainians under Zelensky, who was elected to end the war in the Donbass. Uh, and Zelensky himself is trying as best as he can 
to maneuver around what is a very tense domestic situation. I know the Saker and other people have written about this extensively, and I, I think you, I recommend you listen to some of uh, or read some of the, the commentary over there at the, the Saker.is. Um, because the the problem for Zelensky is that Ukraine is a failed state. Its government doesn't really have a whole lot of power. Um, there are there it, it's corrupt at every level, and the truth of the matter is is that the government doesn't like the government of Iraq really doesn't control that much power and is at the whim of what amounts to armed thugs roaming around the countryside who will overthrow that government at the first possible. Uh, chance and in Ukraine's case, we're talking literal Nazis. I'm not like invoking Godwin's law here or anything. These people are actual Nazis. They are followers of Stephen Bandera, who was a Nazi sympathizer. They are openly, they are openly national socialists. They are openly, um, they openly, you know, <laughs> utilize the swastika and the rest of it. They are Ukrainian Nazis, um, and they are the really the most powerful. Uh, domestic source of, of strife or domestic violence, uh, source of domestic violence in the country, potential source of domestic violence in the country, and therefore they are a force that Zelensky has to contend with. So now, the, there's two things that are going on here is that, that we're running up against the end of the year. The gas transit contract between Gazprom and Naftagaz, Gazprom being the Russian state gas company that everybody knows about, Naftagaz being the Ukrainian state uh, gas company. Um, that contract ends at the end of the year, and it's been a tense situation trying to see if we can get a, a deal brokered here. Now, the Ukrainian Nazis are, are, are of course, don't want to see any any softening on the Donbass. They want to see Crimea returned. They want every they want everything, right? Um, and part of the reason is is that we're telling them we want everything. At the other side of it is we don't want a new gas contract in Ukraine because that will force Gazprom to then have to deal with real um, potential, the, the real potential of not being able to deliver contracted gas volumes in 2020 if there's no transit agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Now, Nord Stream 2, the very controversial pipeline that go, runs from the, uh, the Baltic Sea to uh, just near St. Petersburg to uh, Germany, uh, has been delayed just enough by U.S. intervention into Denmark's politics uh, by delaying a final environmental permit, which was so sad, uh, in order to try and keep Nord Stream 2 and delay it just long enough to cause Gazprom some discomfort. Now, Gazprom will most likely then just have to go into the uh, into the spot market and buy LNG from, uh, from Novatec or whomever and deliver those uh, contracted volumes to Europe that way, and they will do that, and it will cost them money to do it while they're finishing out Nord Stream 2, which probably now won't be operational until, say, the end of Q1 2020, even though it was supposed to be done by the end of 2019. And understand that Nord Stream 2 was always about replacing Ukraine and giving Gazprom and Russia leverage in, in, the, in, the, in the contract negotiations of a new gas transit contract. Now, so we have some movement, though, and this is all a big uh, buildup that we have some movement. And the movement is as follows. Gazprom has finally put forth an offer of a new deal. It's a one-year deal. It's nothing, it's nothing to write home about. Or to extend the existing deal. And now Zelensky wants to do this, but the question is whether or not he can actually do it and get away with it politically. Um, he should 
he may be able to, I don't know. At the same time, the Russians are also um, finishing up a swap of prisoners. They, uh, they did a, a, a like for like 35 for 35 uh, prisoner swap earlier in the year. Um, and now Russia's also finally uh, giving back the ships that were seized in the Kerch Strait in the last November. This was about a year ago, just a little over a year ago now. Um, no ships were seized uh, in an aggressive attempt to blow up the Kerch Strait Bridge, which the United States is absolutely off the charts angry about. Meanwhile, the Russians are um, finishing up the rail lines and it's open to ground traffic via car and you know, Crimea is growing like a weed and it's got its own. And now they've put, they've put more investment into Crimea in the last two years than the Ukraine put into Crimea in the 20 years it had it. It's, it's really sad. Um, the level of institutional um, racism between Ukrainians and ethnic Russians that existed in the former full Ukraine ruled by Kiev before the, before the coup under Yanukovych, um, pretty, pretty crazy. Actually, when you really stop to think about it, and you notice where we are on this, on the, we're on the wrong side of this because of cynical needs to placate Israel, and it just makes me sick to my stomach. But you know, whatever, I, I can't. Yeah, you know, this. What are we going to do about that at this point? So here's the. So that's the situation. So what I've got to, what I want to point, continue to point out though, is the following, which is that a deal is going to get struck. Because Ukraine can't function, the Ukrainian government can't function without the gas um, tariffs. They can barely feed, they can barely heat their homes now. What's really sad about all this is that Poroshenko, very arrogantly, during his tenure as president, said, oh, we're not going to take any Russian gas, even though they were contractually allowed to do so, and even though they did so. And they passed all that gas through into Poland, and they took their, their transit fees. But they didn't actually use any of that domestically for themselves. They went through the fiction of rebuying that same gas that they already transited back from other European suppliers. Same gas. It's still Russian gas. They just, on the books, bought it from somebody else at three times the price. Oh, by the way, the the companies they bought that gas from are all the people in the United States who are pro- who are pushing hardest for impeachment right now because they all place their sons and daughters on the boards of these Ukrainian gas companies wind up who wound up buying all this gas. This is we're talking about Nancy Pelosi, we're talking about John Kerry, we're talking about Mitt Romney, we're talking about Adam Schiff who has not son and daughter there but certainly has um people on his staff who are placed there and everything else. So this is all purely about the impeachment thing is purely about corruption within the Democratic Party, within the DNC, within the RNC, about you know how dirty everybody is in Ukraine, and it's crazy, right? And Poroshenko, of course, who was a U.S. asset, you know, did this at the expense of the of the Ukrainian people. You know, how many times did we see hear stories of of schools not having enough gas to even uh, to turn the turn the gas on so the children can go to school. The kids were given holidays, two, three week holidays during the school year because the Ukrainian state didn't have enough money to buy the gas to heat the freaking schools. I mean, this is how sad, sick, and twisted the story is in Ukraine. And somehow the Russians are the bad guys. Well, I'm not saying that the Russians are good guys or anything, but let's not let's not overstate our case. Like let's let's crazy here, right? So um on the other side of it, from a market perspective, don't let anybody kid you, 
Russian stocks are soaring since the Bank of Russia began cutting rates. Now, I've been complaining about the Bank of Russia dragging its feet for a long, long time, and I'm actually going to write an article about this probably today or tomorrow um, detailing, again, why I still think they're behind the, the yield curve. Uh, I'm probably the only person in the world covering this in any, uh, in any significant detail. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is that um, you go look at the Russian stock market as, 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 as gravity defying as the Dow Jones industrial seems to be, ain't got news for you. It's ain't got nothing over on the Russian stock market, which has doubled and more than doubled in the last four and a half years. Um, after breaking out of a, a major, major six year formation, uh, above 1865, it's not trading close to 3000. Um, and it's showing no signs of letting down and it's not going to because Russia, because of its strong fiscal position and because of its strong governance position uh, and because it is building relationships across Central Asia to utilize the ruble as part of the trade settlement, you know, as one of the trade settlement currencies, this is raising the uh, demand for the ruble in international markets, not in dollar markets, but in, US, in, other, in international markets. As trade uh, and investment go cross-border around Central Asia and using the Russian ruble. It's raising demand for it. And it's raising demand for Russian uh, treasury bonds. Um, you know, as a place to park excess rubles as a function of, you know, growing trade. Um, you know, as a function of growing trade. And we're seeing that. And you see it in the Russian yield curve. And I'm going to go over this in more and more detail. But all of this plays back into Gazprom because as the political risks shift away from Russia, after five years of sanctions and 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 you know horrific horrific uh, false flag stories and and the rest of it, mostly coming out of the UK, the Skripal poisoning, MH17, all of these other things. As these political risks abate, as Nord Stream Two comes online, as the gas transit contract with Ukraine settles itself, after uh, as Zelensky and Putin and to a lesser extent Trump all work towards a solution to the problem created by the neocons in 2014 um, and the Obama administration in 2014 uh, surrounding the uh, the fall of Viktor Yanukovych. As those lift, we're going to see even more movement into uh, Russian assets because they're terminally undervalued. And um, to the Bank of Russia's credit, it is trying to limit foreign uh, capital inflows, but at the same time, it's not doing very much to help alleviate uh, the domestic credit crunch, uh, stifling of uh, credit and, and austerity domestically to increase the use of the ruble as opposed to using the euro or the dollar. And that's the problem, and that's where the that's where their policy, that's where the the the, the policy conundrum for the Bank of Russia is, and it's not going to abate anytime soon. The market will beat the Bank of Russia. It always market beats everybody in the end. So. Um, and why this is ultimately important in the long run, when you really stop to think about what's going on with the gas transit contract, Nord Stream 2, and everything else, the last thing to think about is the European Investment Bank, the EIB, just caved to the Greens and have now prohibiting investment into any type of petroleum project, including natural gas. They can only invest in green energy, renewable energy stuff. There's no more natural gas, no more oil projects, no more, no more any of this stuff. Well, that's insane. Um, the demand for... for gas in, in Europe is off the charts and it's only going to get worse. Uh, and it means that that investment money is not coming from the, the European Investment Bank. It's That means that Europeans aren't going to benefit directly or indirectly 
through the profits off of those uh, projects that are going to be built. They'll just be built by the Russians unilaterally, like Nord Stream 2. At the end of the day, you know, Poland put the kibosh on a joint venture between the five major European uh, oil companies and Gazprom to form a joint venture to build the pipeline. Eventually, they said, no, you can't do that. That's illegal because we don't want you to build the pipeline in the first place. So then those companies lent Gazprom the money. Gazprom owns the pipeline and is going to pay back those loans at in, de- in depreciated euros at 70 cents on the euro over the course of the next 10 years. And then own the pipeline flat out and all the money and all the profits are going to go directly right back to Russia and none of it's going to be shared by the Europeans. And so this, this move by the European Investment Bank is going to be just as, just, is going to be more of the same because the LNG terminals are going to get built. The pipelines are going to get built. The new South Stream or the new train three or four of, of Turk Stream is going to get built. It's, it's South Stream. It's the old South Stream pipeline is going to go directly across the Black Sea into Bulgaria and then points west same thing with you know the the secondary trains off of turk stream and every other pipeline that gets built they're all going to get built they're just not going to get built with european money and therefore the europeans are not going to get any concessions on the price of the delivered gas or anything else it's called cutting off your nose to spite your face meanwhile we're talking about solar and wind in europe trying to replace this are you kidding it's not like there's any total like look at the total solar hours that are available in germany Okay, we can barely make solar work here in Florida, and we're gonna and we're gonna make solar work in Germany. Whatever you know, um, solipsism. My name is human. All right, so we're not you know whatever's going on here. We're gonna be fighting about Nord Stream three in a, in a couple of years, and we'll be covering that fight far more than we're gonna be talking about anything else. Far more likely than we're gonna be talking about a green revolution in. Europe, because I mean, other than the other than to laugh at it, because you know we have a cooling planet and every other thing going on. All right, um, last thing, I do no- normally like to do these and do two topics on these on these podcasts. And I know I'm running a little long, but you know whatever. So my other topic for the day is uh, I do want to talk about what's going on with Brexit. I've been covering Brexit to a greater or lesser degree than anybody else in the world. And I think I should probably update you as what I'm I'm seeing. Um, Mike Shedlock had a great article out the other day. And it's looking like Mike's going to be proven to be right about the trend on the polls. It is what it is. I don't like the, I don't like the, uh, the trends that I'm seeing. I think it's bad for the UK and I'll explain why in just a second, but it's pretty obvious that the Tories on Boris Johnson and their strategic advisors have rightly um, handicapped what's actually motivating British voters now that they have a withdrawal agreement that is better than what Theresa May had negotiated, even though the deal ultimately is has a very strong chance of winding up in the long run being no different than Theresa May's deal, except that they hived off, except off that they, you know, they threw Northern Ireland to the European wolves. Like it's actually worse. Um, but that said, for three and a half years, Brexit voters have been dealing with Project Fear of, of fear of Brexit, fear of the consequences, fear of oh, we'll lose jobs and money, and oh my God, and Trump's going to take over the NHS, and ah! you know, it's like dogs and cats living together. The state puff marshmallow man's going to you know destroy London and everything else, right? No, the real fear now is Jeremy Corbyn, and looking at the potential of Corbyn taking over the government. 
and the fear of splitting the leave vote is seeing Brexit Party support collapse. Farage did his best to try and say, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand in the way of that. I'm going to stand down my people in, in the, the Tory seats. I'm going to focus on stopping labor. Now, nationally, the polls are terrible. I don't know what they look like in specific seats that the Brexit Party is trying to uh, to win. And British polling is notoriously bad. Like, it's notoriously bad. Like, I like to say there are lies, damn lies, statistics in British polling. It's, it's, it's that order of operations. It's that bad. Uh, remember, the original Brexit vote polls the night before the polls were that Remain was going to win 55-45. Like, are you kidding me? Um, so, but it's fear of Jeremy Corbyn and his, you know, radical um, Marxism. Now, here's the thing. Corbyn and Farage are both outsiders. When you look at Boris Johnson's deal, everybody, after Johnson got the deal signed, everybody, including the media in Britain, was all of a sudden on his side. The European Union was happy with the deal. Everybody was all smiles. When all the bad guys are smiling... That's your signal that this deal is rotten. But they understood that this deal was exactly what was ultimately what they wanted and yet kicks the can down the road of the final betrayal another six months to a year. Okay. But, or possibly even, you know, two years. But what it does is it gives them the, it gives the exhausted uh, leave voter something to hang on to. And then we get the general election. Now they can shift the fear from the fear of Brexit to the fear of Corbyn. Unite behind me, Boris Johnson, and I will lead you to Nirvana. I will lead you to Brexit. I will stop Corbyn. We will do all these great things. And that's working. And people are exhausted with Brexit. They just want it done. And they don't, at a certain level, they don't care that Johnson's deal isn't a real Brexit. And they've been worn down to a point of not caring. All they know is that Jeremy Corbyn is not acceptable. Now, here's the thing. from Think about this from the British elite's point of view. Think about it from Boris Johnson's point of view. If you think of him as the face of, as the middle manager of, in charge currently, who's been promoted from middle management up to maintain the British status quo. His job, marginalize both Corbyn and Farage and shut them both out. This is exactly what I've been saying has been Johnson's strategy since July. And the question was whether or not Johnson was going to you know, be able to pull it off or not. Has it been where I've disagreed with people? Maybe it's a little bit of rose-colored glasses on my part. Certainly, it doesn't really matter. But the British status quo does not want either Farage or Corbyn to have any real power in Westminster. They certainly don't want Farage to have any seats. So you now unite around that, about marginalizing those two guys. And you'll note that you've got the BBC, you've got Sky News, you've got the EU, you've got everybody lining up behind this, except for really Donald Tusk, but who cares about him? He's leaving. And when you see that, it's very, very obvious what what the play is here. Okay. So they failed earlier in the year to get rid of Corbyn. They tried the whole thing with the anti-Semitism 
uh, things with ousting Alistair, getting Al- Alistair Campbell, setting himself up to be, to be ousted from the party and to try and, you know, get a shadow cabinet revolt against Corbin didn't work. All of these things happened and they were trying to get rid of Corbin so that they can, then when they get to a second general election, they could put, and they get to a new general election, they could put a different face on labor and have that be the, the globalist party because labor has always been a globalist party and the, the conservatives have always been a fake globalist party, just like the Democrats are a globalist party here in the United States and the Republicans are fake non-globalists when they are actually globalists. So you can see the play here. It's always the same play over and over again. So that's where we are. It looks like the polls, it looks like the British people have been, um, have been uh, ground into a pace to accept this fate. It's not good for them, and we'll see what happens. If Farage and company can win four or five seats, it will be good because it will give them a, it will give them a a role, just like Alternative for Germany has gets a role, got a role in at the governance level, and when that happens, you get people that gives people, it gives them a legitimacy, it gives it makes them a regular voice, it makes them a regular, um, it makes them an established thing. In electoral politics and general election politics, almost always, no matter how what happens, the people always go back to, always kind of con- coalesce around one of the major parties, at least in the first election during the political crisis. We saw it in Germany, right? Um, where we saw it in Germany, uh, where the polls were starting to really show that AFD was going to break out above 18 because start growing towards 20%. And then when the election finally showed up, like, no, we were, we're not going to do that. And the polls always tighten back up and, and they move four or five points in the other direction. And that happens. And that's normal. The next election cycle is where I think all of this populism really boils over. I think we'll see it in Italy. We'll see it in Germany. We're going to see it in France. We're going to surprise. It's going to be an upside surprise in France. I think we're starting to see it already in Spain and it's going to happen with the Brits, but I don't think it's going to happen this election. And then we'll see what happens vis-a-vis Brexit and what the state of things are after another year of Boris Johnson um, betraying the voters, which is I ex- absolutely expect him to do. All right. So that's what I've got for this morning, guys. I kind of, this has been kind of fun. So um, we will do this again next week. I'm going to try and get one of these out every Tuesday is the goal. Between 15 and 25 minutes, and we'll see what we can come up with. So, um, this has been the Gold Ghosts and Guns podcast for Tuesday, November 19th, 2019. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Be well and keep your stick on the ice.